And please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. As we continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans, we are this morning at Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. So realize it or not, we are 12 days away from Valentine's Day, which means it's time to start looking for cards to give with your loved ones, maybe a card this year with a picture of a beheaded martyr on the front of it. I mean, you do know that the historical origin of Valentine's Day comes from one of several medieval stories about beheaded martyrs, don't you? I mean, now wouldn't that make an interesting Hallmark card? Right? Cute couple, hearts, beheaded martyr. It really wasn't until the 1300s when Chaucer connected that this time of year with the time of year when the, the birds were mating. And then over the next couple centuries, this became a day for people in England to write love poetry to each other. But it really didn't become a trend until the 1800s when Esther Howland brought this trend to America as a new business venture where she could sell these cards and things to make quite quite a profit. And then, of course, the Cadbury Chocolate Company caught on around 1868, and they started marketing a decorated box of chocolate for that day. And so this celebration of martyrs became a profitable celebration of love. And the holiday is certainly profitable, isn't it? With estimates showing that consumers this year are going to be spending about $20 billion. However, although this cultural expression of love is very profitable, we also see that it's very fickle. Just glance at some of the cards that you may see down the aisle And look at the self-centered language and the self-centered discussion that is used for this idea of love, that love is all about how you make me feel. And love is contingent and dependent on my feelings and my experience that, of course, can change before next year's Valentine's Day rolls around. It's seen by statistics, of course, with the lack of commitment in relationships, not to mention the divorce rates. Because human love is so fickle, isn't it? It's so temporary, it's so uncertain, it's so strong one Valentine's Day and then just gone the next. And the danger is, is that we would take this idea of human love that's so deficient and that we would potentially think that God loves in the same way. Last Sunday, we looked at how the justification we have through faith in Christ gives us assurance because God's love has been poured out into our hearts. We have assurance. We have hope because God loves us. But that brings up a very important question. And Paul knows that that brings up an important question. And the question is, how do we know that's true? How do I really know, really know that God loves me? And that's possibly a question that many people here have struggled with, at least in their hearts. Maybe you've looked at your life and you realized you're a mess. Your life is out of control. You keep falling into the same sin over and over. And you start thinking, if you were God, you wouldn't love you. So, so why is God any different? Or maybe you're, you've tried so hard to be worthy of love. And every human experience has just been the opposite of that. That people just keep disappointing you and friends keep leaving you, and family just keeps alienating themselves from you. And, and, and you, you, you meet new people, and you think that maybe this time, you, if you keep up with what's expected of you, maybe this time that you'll get that love in return, and, but you know that eventually that you're going to disappoint them. And, and you think, how is God any different? 
What proof do we have? What objective evidence do we have that shows that God truly loves us? That's what Paul addresses here in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. That the word of God here gives us proof of God's love and the cross of Christ. And that proof of God's love assures our heart in a way that we can experience confident joy from that knowledge of God's love. So let's look at this love of God this morning. First, let's look at the proof of God's love. Look at verse 6 with me. Verse 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Paul, Paul doesn't pull any punches. He gets right to the point here. How do we know God loves us? The answer is simple, because Christ died for us. See, the condition of God's love, the guarantee of God's love, it has nothing to do with you or me. It has nothing to do with our worthiness or our lovability. In fact, God loves us not because of who we are, but because of who he is. God loves us, it says in this verse, despite everything in our life that, would, that could say that we're unworthy of that love. Look at how we're described in this verse. God loves us while we were still what? While we were still weak and, and ungodly and sinners, right? So weak, that means that we are feeble, that we are frail, that we are powerless. I like how the New American Standard and the New Living Translation translates this, that we were helpless. While we were helpless, we were helpless to fix ourselves. We were helpless to save ourselves. We were helpless to, to guarantee ourselves of any acceptance or love. And then he uses another adjective that's even more unflattering than helpless, that we're ungodly. We're not just helpless, we're also wicked and rebellious. Our, our sin has rebelled against the God who created us. Our sin has shamed and dishonored the God who loves us. God has loved us and we've responded to him in sin, shaming and dishonoring him. So that we, by our character and our actions, show that, that if that's all it is, then we're unworthy of that love. And that presents us a problem, right? The problem is, if we would see ourselves as the Bible sees us, that, that we would see that our merits and our actions, that those can't deserve God's love, right? It's, it's, you think of you know, the pictures of a cute, cuddly puppy, and it's like, oh, it's so cute, I love it, I want to cuddle it, right? We're not the cute, cuddly puppy, we're the raccoon that growls and eats your trash. You don't go, I love it, I want to cuddle it. No, you don't. And we need to realize that the way that Paul describes us here really comes into direct conflict with the way that our culture would, would, see our, would say that we should see ourselves, with really this idolatrous worship of self-esteem that we see throughout the culture. You know, our family, the Shigo family, we love movies. We love especially children's movies. We're living that Disney Plus life right now. And, and, and as a parent, though, I need to be aware that many of these movies, from children's age on up, from Dumbo to Ratatouille to How to Train Your Dragon, all great movies, by the way, uh, but they give this cultural message that if you just look inside yourself, you'll see that you really deserve all your dreams. You really deserve it all. The problem is not within you. The problem is with everybody else. You, when you see inside yourself, you're going to see, you, the problem is you need to have the self-confidence to be able to see the, how deserving you are. But such thinking, do you see how that directly contradicts the spiritual reality 
of who we are without Christ, how, how such thinking would actually blind us if we're so focused on ourselves. It blinds us to how God, amazing God's love really is, that God's love is not dependent on who we are, that God loves us not because of our inner greatness, but despite our inner depravity, that there's nothing we could do to earn God's love. I mean, there's nothing we could do to lose God's love because it's not based on us. It's based on who he is. So that at just the right time, according to God's rescue plan of salvation, right when we needed him most, as people who are weak and ungodly and unable to save ourselves, unable to make ourselves right before God, unable to do anything by our actions to earn love, at that right time, God, despite all that we are, shows that by his very nature, he loves us. He shows his love for us as weak, ungodly sinners by sending Jesus to die for us. Now, we can move on, and, 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 but Paul doesn't move on. He really wants to make sure we understand this. So he gives some examples, some illustrations to back this up in verse 7. Look there in verse 7, where he gives this analogy to back up his point here. In verse 7, he goes on to say, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one, uh, one would dare even to die. So Paul is giving a generally recognized example here. Do you, do you see the language of one or someone here? He's talking about generally. Generally, here's an example that we should probably recognize generally in life. See, in contrast to God's love, he's saying this is generally how human love works. From a human point of view, how love works. It's not a universal principle. This is not true for every circumstances. There might be exceptions. But generally, from our experience, from our observations of human love, he's saying this, is, this should prove true. So he says, first of all, people would scarcely or hardly or very, very rarely die for a righteous person. Well, who's a righteous person? A righteous person, Paul's talking about someone who always does what's right who always keeps the letter of the law. They pay their bills on time, they drive the speed limit, they're a good citizen, they're invested in righteous causes socially and culturally and humanly. And that's good, right? But Paul says, think about it. How likely are you to die for someone just because they do all the right things? You lining up to do that? Just because someone follows the rule and obeys the law, is that the reason that you would die for them? You would respect the person, Probably if we take a survey, I'm not going to have you raise your hands this morning, but probably not many would actually die for that person, even if they're a really, really righteous person. But he says very rarely. So the idea is every once in a while, if someone maybe is really righteous, they have a really righteous cause, they seem really deserving because of that righteousness, maybe someone in like one in a million might die for someone like that. More occasionally, Paul says, Someone might be more willing to die for a good person. This good person is someone who doesn't just do what's right. They do good. They do good specifically, probably the inference, is to you. You've seen their goodness in your life. That They do good to you. They're your, your friends. They're your family members. They're the, the people that have shown their goodness by the way that they treat you so good. These are the people that you've benefited from and that you've been blessed by. And Paul says, maybe, perhaps, you might die for them. There are some examples of this, right? There's examples of someone that, 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 man, has been so good to you and you care for them so much because of that that maybe, maybe you die for them. This is a, a soldier laying down his life for his friends. This is a, a mother laying down her life for her children, right? 
And here's the point, though, through, all, through these examples. Paul is saying this is the way that human, humanity tends to express love, where love is based on the attractiveness of that object, right? That, 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 that when we talk about, when we say, who are the people you love? They're the people who are good to you, tend to be, right? You start listing your friends and you start listing your family, right? That they're the people that are good to us. So, and Paul's argument is, if it's rare for someone to die for a righteous person, for someone who's really right, righteous cause, righteous life, and it's, it's still pretty rare, it's only like a maybe, if someone's going to die for someone that they really cherish, who's been really good to them, what are the chances that anyone would die for a weak, ungodly, evil sinner like us? None, Right? If, they won't, if people won't even die for a righteous person, not even a good person usually, what chance do we have if we are weak, ungodly, evil sinners? So from a human perspective, no wonder there's something in us that starts to sometimes question if God really loves us. Because when we experience human love, then we say, what hope is there for us? But praise God, that's not where the passage ends, right? In fact, two, the next two words are two of the most sweetest words in the whole Bible, where Paul says, but God. But God's sacrificial love is radically different than human love. Look at verse 8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is so different than our experience with human love. His love is radical. His love is shocking. His love is amazing. Think about the differences that he, that's laid out here. Paul's showing that human love is subjective. It's fickle. But God's love is objective. It's proven. Verse 8 says that God shows his love or demonstrates his love. I really like how the Christian Standard Bible translates this verb, that God proves his love. God gives objectable, provable, undoubtable evidence of his love in sending Jesus Christ to die for us. It's not fickle. It's not subjective. It's objective. It's proven. We also see a difference here that where human love is based on the attractiveness of the object, God's love, we see, is for sinners. It's not based on attractiveness at all. Notice the start of the verse, while we were still sinners. See, not only were we in rebellion against God, not only were we sinners, we weren't even trying to make that right. We weren't moving towards loving God. It's not that we were moving a little bit closer towards loving God and God says, oh, good, then I'll move and love you too. No, it's because God was moving towards loving us. I love how one commentator puts this. I, I love this. He says, God loves because of what he is, not because of what we are. I just love that statement. God loves because of what he is, not because of what we are. But, but notice the rest of that phrase, that God doesn't just love sinners here, but he loves us. He showed his love for us. And, and maybe there's people here that are still struggling with that idea. They're still struggling with this idea of God's love. And I, I want you to know, because this is what the text says, God loves you. Some of you maybe be think, are thinking you're too far gone. That, that you're thinking, if, if you really only knew what was going on in my life, if you really only knew what, what no one else knows. But I want you to know that God loves you. God does know and God loves you, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. He loves you and sent Jesus to die for your sins. 
Some of you maybe are thinking you're just too far damaged. No one else has really loved you, so how could God love you? You need to know that God, through his Holy Spirit, has said that God loves you. God loves you not because of who you are, because of who he is, and sent Jesus to give you eternal life. And some of you this morning are maybe just realizing for the first time that as hard as you try, that you're still a sinner and, 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 and not the person you thought that you were. But you need to know that God loves you and sent Jesus so that you could have salvation through him. So we see these differences with, with, with God's love and, and, and human love. We see one more difference here, that where human love tends to be selfish, right? For those often who've done good to me, God's love is sacrificial. Human love tends to be selfish. God's love is sacrificial. Notice again those, those little important words at the, at the end there, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us for our advantage, for our good. God's love is demonstrated not, not about what we bring to God, not about what, how we make God feel, but that God is love and demonstrated sacrificially his love for us by sending his son for us. That for us, that's the language of substitution, that Christ died for us in our place as our substitute to pay the penalty for our sin and rebellion when he died on the cross. That Jesus lived the perfect life as our representative and died in our place as our substitute to guarantee that we could experience God's love forever as we repent and place our faith in Christ. You know, one of my favorite examples, and I know I've used it before, but it's just so perfect to illustrate how Christ's death as our substitute shows God's love for us. It, it comes from Ernest Gordon's book, um, uh, Miracle on the River Kwai. Gordon was a POW in a, a Japanese prison camp during World War II. And in this prison camp, the Japanese guards were making the prisoners build a railroad, uh, a railroad through the jungle to, tra- to transport Japanese guards to the battlefront. And it was known as the Railroad of Death. because It was called that because the prisoners were tortured and starved and worked to the point of, of, of exhaustion and death. Nearly 16,000 of the soldiers imprisoned there died. And Gordon describes one occasion where at the end of this workday, when they're building this railroad, the tools were collected before the prisoners were returned to their quarters. And the count came back that one of the shovels was missing. And so the guard was enraged, and he demanded to know which prisoner had stolen the shovel. And he worked himself to this, into this paranoid fury, and he demanded whoever stole the shovel to step forward and take his punishment. And no one did. And so the guard started shouting, according to Gordon, all die, all die. And he cocked his rifle and he aimed it at the prisoners. And at that moment, one man stepped forward. And standing at attention, he calmly declared, I did it. And the Japanese guards at once beat him to death with a shovel. As they finished up and went through the checkpoint to head back to the, the barracks, the, the shovels were counted again, and they found there was not a shovel missing, that they had miscounted. So as the friends carried away their, their friend's lifeless body, they realized he did this not because he had done it, he had taken the shovel himself, not because he was guilty, but as a substitute to save his friends. And I think that's a picture for us, to understand what if we were there But there's a stronger picture here because in our circumstance, we really did take the shovel, right? We really did take the shovel and Jesus still gave himself up for us to die in our place. That's the demonstration of God's love for you. 
See, God might say, what more could I do to demonstrate my love for you than that? I set my son to the cross out of my love for you. This is how God demonstrates, objectively giving proof of his love for us by Christ's death on the cross for sinners. If you're visiting with us this morning and you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to say again, welcome, that we are so glad that you are here. And and I hope that you are getting a picture of God's amazing love for you. That's not dependent on, on how right you try to be or how good you try to be because we always fall short but that God loves you because of who he is, not because of who we are. And think about it. As good as you are and as right as you try to be, how many people are going to be on that list that you know with certainty would die for you? But God, the God who created you, has demonstrated his love for you. That even though we had rebelled against him in our sin, that even though we had dishonored and shamed God by our actions, that, that we, we, we rejected God and lived as if we were the own God, our own gods of our lives. Yet he still loves us and sent his son Jesus to die on the cross in our place as our substitute to pay for our sins. And then he rose Jesus from the dead to, to demonstrate that this, this, this payment was made, that there is for, that to offer us forgiveness of our sin and reconciliation and a restored relationship with God, to offer that to us as a free gift of his grace. If you were to turn from your sin in repentance and turn to Christ in faith. If you want to know more about this God who loves you, if you want to know more about this God who loves you enough to send his son to give you this gift of eternal life, please don't leave this morning without asking someone. Ask, ask the person who brought you. Ask any member of our church. I'll be at the back of the sanctuary afterwards. I'd love to answer your questions and tell you about this God who loves you and tell how you can be, have your sin forgiven, be reconciled to him, and have this free gift of eternal life that he wants to give you. And for my Christian brothers and sisters here this morning, what a comfort this is, Right? This, this message of God's love is not just that we tell others, but we have to tell ourselves this, that, that we have this objective proof that God loves us. So when you struggle with your doubts, if God really loves you, we have somewhere to look. We look to the cross where God has proven his love by sending Jesus to die for our sins. When, when you need hope, does God really love you enough that he's going to be there for you when you're struggling? You find that, that hope at the cross where God proved that he is always lovingly working for your good. When you need motivation for your obedience, that we find that at the cross, where you find your loving Savior and your Lord who is worthy of that obedience. And he's shown that because of his great love for you. I love the the words of the song we sung earlier, right? How deep the Father's love for us how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch's treasure. When we struggle and when we question God's love, that's where we run, to the cross. So the cross is the proof of God's love. But then what? What what does this proof of God's love mean for us then? How is that significant for us? That's why Paul continues here. He then discusses the results of God's love. Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. He continues to say, Since, therefore... We have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. 
So Paul says, therefore, since God has demonstrated this love for us by sending his son Jesus to die for our sins, therefore, this love of God, it does something. It has some sort of result. It's not just something of, I learned that, I went to church, I learned it today, check, I've got it in the memory bank. No, that there is a result that this has for us, and that result is it gives us future assurance. It gives us assurance of the future of salvation of that last day. So so what Paul's doing here in verses 9 and 10, he's giving two parallel pictures of salvation. Look at verse 9, he talks about justification. Then look at verse 10, he talks about reconciliation in almost the same way. He's using a similar logic in both of these verses. He's giving an argument from the greater to the lesser. This is what the the logic he's using. Greater to the lesser in verse 9, greater to the lesser in verse 10. This is the type of argument that might say, If you had no problem with that 20-mile hike last week, you're going to have no issues with the two-mile hike this week, right? If if the bigger, if the greater wasn't a problem, then the lesser certainly wouldn't be an obstacle. Maybe more similar to to what Paul's arguing here. If you think about it and you say, man, I remember when my mom and, and, and I was moving across country and she came over and she helped me pack up all my stuff and she got it all in the moving van and then she flew over with me across the country and she helped me unload all my stuff and get it set up and make it all how it's supposed to be. If she did all of that, I certainly wouldn't hesitate when I visit her to ask her for a ride from the airport, would I? Right, if she, if she loved me enough to do all that, Certainly, I wouldn't be worried about, I don't know if she's, that's, that's, that's pretty inconvenient to give me a ride to her house from the airport. There's no way. She's already proven it with the greater, so the lesser is assured. That's Paul's argument here. If God and his love has already accomplished the greater work in our salvation, then the God who loves you, has proven his love for you, will assuredly, assuredly accomplish the lesser work of fulfilling and maintaining that salvation to guarantee it for that last day. See, notice the future language that he uses in verse 9 and 10. Knock about, notice this, we will be saved. You say, wait a minute. I remember I got saved. What's this will be language? He's talking here about a salvation after our justification, a salvation after our reconciliation. Connecting here that there's a salvation after we've experienced our salvation and conversion. See, we are saved right now. This is not meant to doubt whether we're saved right now. We are saved right now if we've placed our faith in Christ, but there is a future aspect to our salvation that we have not yet experienced. We have not yet stood before God on that last day when we have heard the verdict that will determine our eternal destiny that if we're in Christ, to eternal life. Paul is talking about how the love of God that we see in the cross of Christ now gives us assurance of what we know will be the verdict of that future salvation on that last day then. So let's look at these pictures real quick. Verse 9, we see that Christ's justification gives us assurance. Paul's talked about this already through Romans. Talked a lot about justification and specifically about how justification gives us assurance. So why is he telling us again? If you're a parent, why do you tell your kids things again and again and again? Because you want to make sure they get it right? So by Paul going through this again, he's saying, listen, if you're a little drowsy last week, you didn't get much sleep on the Saturday night, you weren't paying attention, you need to listen up this time, right? That's what he's saying. You need to get this, that this idea of of what Christ has done in our justification, this is courtroom language. We have been justified in Christ, meaning that God has already told us what the verdict's going to be on the last day. We are declared innocent. We are declared righteous by God as the judge of the universe. 
that God has transferred the forensic status that we had. He transferred us from being guilty sinners to righteous saints through the blood of Christ. His loving sacrifice on the cross paid our sin and gave, paid, for, paid for our sin and guaranteed us this righteous status before God. And here's Paul's argument, right? If God in his love has already removed the greatest obstacle of our guilt and sin by the blood of Christ, if we're already declared innocent, if we're already justified, then, then doesn't that give absolute assurance of our status on that less day? Isn't the much lesser obstacle if God's already declared it just to finally hear him say it that we're innocent? Then we see the second picture in verse 10 very similar that Christ's reconciliation also gives us assurance. We were self-declared enemies of God. We were rebelling against our creator and our sin. We broke our relationship with God. It was broken. It was alienated. It was hostile. But while we were God's enemies, even though we were God's enemies, he loved us and sent Jesus to die on the cross, paying for our sins, to reconcile us to God, to fully restore our relationship with God so that we have a completely restored and reconciled friendship with God. And the argument, again, is that if God in his love has already proven that to the fact that when, while we were still sinners, he loved us and reconciled us, then how much more are we guaranteed of that final salvation, that final judgment that to, be, to be life eternal now that we're already God's friends? See, the argument throughout these verses is the same. That God in his love has already done the bigger work, the greater work of justifying us as sinners and reconciling us as enemies. How much then is the lesser work guaranteed for this God who's shown that he loves us to keep us righteous and, and, and his friends to bring that promised salvation that he's guaranteed in the end? See, God's love is where we find our assurance and our confidence and our hope that we need for that guaranteed salvation on that last day in Christ. But most of us, we don't usually think about that last day, do we? We don't tend to think about that because we have so much going on. We have so much going on this day and this week and this year. We have projects that we're working on. We have vacations that we're planning. We have, we have other obstacles that we're focusing on. And we get deceived by all these other things going on right now. We get deceived into thinking that that last day, ah, it's far off in the future. I've got time to, to figure that one out. And then life, every once in a while, by God's providence, gives us shocking reminders that that last day is coming for us all. And, and it gives us shocking reminders that that day is coming oftentimes when we don't expect it. Last Sunday, when I was cleaning up after the service, I, like most of you, saw the headlines of the tragic death of Kobe Bryant and the eight others in the helicopter crash. And, and I was shocked by the news, and I was also just, just interested in the emotionally significant impact that these deaths, and, and if you look at the news, really specifically his death, made on the culture, and, and to be honest, even on myself. I got, why, why is this death so much more meaningful than other news stories of people dying all the time? What, what makes this different? I, I just, I'm trying to understand the human reaction here. Certainly this has something to do with the nature of celebrity, and thinking that we actually have a deeper connection with someone than we really have, I think that's true. I also think that there's something about that, that, that Kobe Bryant, over and over, they kept saying he's 41. He's only 41. He was entering into the prime of his life as a father and as a celebrity figure. 
And, and more than that, he had every advantage. If anyone had every advantage at their fingertips of every single thing that human life has to offer to be able to guarantee decades more of life, it was him. He had every resource available to him for that. And, and none of it mattered. And then there's, of course, the tragedy of the teenagers on board as well, who should have had this full life ahead of them. And, and so I think that there's this, this aspect of this tragedy that's such a stark reminder, it's such a shocking reminder of, of something that our culture and even we ourselves just don't like to think about. It's what Ecclesiastes chapter 9 says. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared in an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. And the only thing that's going to matter at that time is what will happen when you have to stand before the God of the universe and the, your eternal destiny, eternal death or eternal life is dependent on that. You know, I was so grieved as I was watching the news media and watching things over social media and I saw an interview with Kobe Bryant in 2016 and it, he was asked by an interviewer what he thought happened after death and his reply was, I don't know. I guess I, I'll find out when I get there. And, and this was four years ago. Things may have changed. I'm not declaring final judgment. But all I could think about when I watched that was whether or not he knew here, he knows now. And he knows now that what God has revealed, that everything depends on whether or not he's trusted in Christ. My friends, what is your hope in? What is your confidence in? What is your assurance in on that last day? Because it is coming sooner than we realize. Maybe you don't have any confidence. Maybe you're like Kobe and you say, you'll find out when you get there. But we need to remember that that day is coming, prepared or not, and everything will matter on whether or not we've trusted in Christ. Is your hope in trying to be good enough, morally good enough, good, religiously good enough, by your good works, but none of that's going to guarantee future hope because how good is good enough? It's never good enough. None of that's going to save us from the wrath to come. Where is our hope? God has demonstrated the only hope we can have, the only assurance we can absolutely have as we look to the cross and look to Christ and put our hope in what Christ has done for us in his death and resurrection. So we see that the cross is the proof of God's love. And we see that that, that proof of God's love gives us hope and assurance for the last day. And then the last question that Paul would address is, how should we respond to God's love? Look how Paul concludes this passage as he talks about our response to God's love. Look at verse 11. Paul says, more than that, more than all of that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So Paul says, not only that, more than all of that, ultimately when we understand God's love, the response of someone who's experienced that love is to rejoice in the God who's shown us that love. And we need to remember that, as we saw last week, that that word rejoice is not just, it is emotional reaction, but not just an emotional reaction. It means to boast or to place your confidence in that thing or person. So we should say that we should have joyful confidence in God who loves us. See, as a Christian, our boast, our confidence, our joy is rooted and anchored, not, not just in words, but in a person, in the God who has shown his love for us. See, as much as we find our assurance in promises of future glory. That's true. We find greater assurance in the God who's actually promised that future glory. 
as much as we find assurance, as we look at the character and endurance in our lives and say, look, God's really saved us. We have greater assurance in the loving God who's given us that insurance and perseverance. It's all about that we would recognize that we enjoy not just the gifts of God, that the gifts of God's point is that we enjoy the God who's the giver of those gifts, that we would cherish the giver, not just the gifts. You see, it's good this morning that we are here and we're studying God's love because God has revealed those truths to us so that we would know and understand his love. But this passage here, it ends by saying that there's something here that it's so much more important than understanding a concept. This is not just about understanding a concept. This is about cherishing a person. Right? This, is, this is so much more than just intellectually considering his love, but that that, that would affect us so that we would have that we would boast in, that we would have confidence in, that we would rejoice in that God who loves us. You see the difference there? That's what Paul's emphasizing here. See, the, the Christian life is not anything less than learning these truths about God who loves us. We live our lives based on the truth that God has revealed to us. But the Christian life is so much more than just understanding truths with our minds. It's about being transformed by these truths in our hearts in our emotions that we experience, in the choices that we make, in the worship that we give because of who this God is that loves us. As Paul's going to later go, here's where he's driving. He's driving to Romans chapter 12 where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, because of these truths of what God has done in Christ and his love for us, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed anymore uh, to conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's what it means to truly know the love of God. Not just to know it here, but to know it here. It's just that we would boast, boast and exult and rejoice and worship the God who loves us and gives us salvation and reconciliation through the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the Christian life is more than just understanding God's love. It's actually finding our confidence and joy in the God who loves us. Have you experienced this love of God in Christ? Have you really experienced this love in such a way that you find your confident joy there? We should ask ourselves, do do we see that? Do we see that we are placing our confident joy in him? Let me give you an example. How does God's love affect the way that we think about relationships? When you think about your friendships, you think about your family relationships, or you think about your marriage relationships, where is your confidence and joy? Does your confidence and joy come from what they do? How they might meet your needs, how they give you the love and affirmation you desire. But what happens when their response is fickle? It's as fickle and temporary as some of the Valentine's cards we give. What happens then? Or is our confidence not in them, but in God, who's proven his abundant love for you? See, my confidence and my boast and my joy and what is going to hold me steady is not dependent on that other person, but dependent on God who's already proven it. And so I can love them. I can love them not because of how attractive they are. I can love them not in order to get love and return from that person, But we can love others, even those who seem completely unlovable. And you know who the people are in your lives. We can love them out of the overflow of the confidence and joy of the God who loves us. 
You see that? It's not dependent on them. That when my confidence is rooted in that God and God and his love for me, then I can overflow and actually love others. How, how does the knowledge of the God who loves us affect our worship? When we worship as a church, are we more focused about our confidence and joy in our experiences in, in, or in the God who loves us? Now, now there are examples in Scripture where worship can focus on our experiences and our emotion. The Psalms do that. That's not wrong to do. There are times to express our love for God. There are times to express our need for God. There are times to express our experience with God. It's not wrong to sing songs like, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. That's not wrong. But when you look at the examples in the Bible of worship, those instances, those instances are so vastly outnumbered by rejoicing and praising, not on our experience, but on who God is. The focus most of the time is on God and, his, and this loving God who loves us. So the focus is on boasting and rejoicing in the God who is demonstrated with absolute, guaranteed, objective proof of his love for us by sending Christ to die on the cross for us as sinners. Such amazing love that gives us assurance and confidence and hope that we need to have guaranteed salvation on the last day. That our worship ultimately is not about us. It's about him. And so what, what response then would we give to a loving God? Worship. Paul says worship in our lives and certainly worship with our voices. As Charles Wesley once wrote in his hymn, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Whereas Chris Tomlin would later rephrase it, amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me? Amazing love, I know it's true. And it's my joy to honor you. In all I do, I honor you. Let us know God's love in a way that we would worship like that. Let me pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for reminding us of these truths, especially the truth of who you are and your love for us. Lord, we get, so, we get so off track. We get so distorted. We get so blind by, by the experiences of love that we have in our culture and our friendships, and, 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 and we forget how much different your love is for us. Thank you for what a comfort that is. Thank you for what a joy that is. Father, we pray that you would help us to grasp how wide and high and long and deep your love is. We pray that you would help us to grasp it in such a way that it would transform us transform our hearts, transform our lives, transform our relationships, and transform our worship as we would respond to you, the amazing God who loves us. We pray this in Jesus' name.